everybody? Y'all ready for church? Anybody ready for church? Let's go. What about online? You guys ready for church? You're not ready. You get ready because you're, you're about to get it. Hey, man, we are in this series called Bricklayers. Let me hear you say Bricklayers. We're in this series, and the big question that we kind of started out with last week, that kind of the overarching question is like, like, what great work are you doing? What great work are you doing? And sometimes we can look at that rhetorically, but answer the question, like, what great work are you doing? What great work are you doing? Like, in your job, when you go to your job, what great work are you doing? Is it simply as easy as I'm just... Just got it. I'm just, I'm just bringing home the bacon, Steve, and that's what I'm doing. Like, is that the job you're doing? Or, or are you having opportunity to add value to people you work with, work for, that, you, that, you may, that may work for you? People who are your clients and customers and competitors or, or students. Like, like, what great work are you doing? It's easy to lose sight of the great work that we're doing. What about at home? What great work are you doing? How many moms in the house this morning? Let's give it up for some moms. Let's go. Moms, what great work are you doing? Some, some days it just feels like you're changing diapers and buying school supplies and carpooling. It doesn't feel like a great work, does it? It's easy to be distracted from the great work that you're doing at building kids into adults, at training them with deep roots in the faith to go out into the world and to make a massive difference. You're doing a great work. Like what, what about in your neighborhoods? Are you doing a great work? What great work are you doing? Do you, do, you just, do you just drive home, pull in the garage, and before you even get out of your car, you just hit the button so it closes behind you? Like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I cannot people today, you know. But, but what about in your neighborhood? What great work are you doing? What influence are you having? How are you adding value to people? What great work are you doing? And we're looking at this series from a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah um, it was a great leader in the Bible. We see that the story of how he went back into Jerusalem and rebuilt the wall is one of the great leadership lessons that we see. And just to kind of give you a recap of exactly what's happening in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah um, was a cupbearer in the house of the king. And so what that meant was he was in charge of bringing the king wine and food, and he would have to taste it first so that, the, so that, the, if, it, so that if it were poisoned, the king wouldn't die, he would die, and the king wouldn't die. So every day is a day of self-sacrifice. Every, every day is a day of just showing up. Like it brings a whole new meaning to work, doesn't it, fellas? Like it brings a whole new meaning, but this is what he's doing. Now he hears word that back in Jerusalem, back where God dwells, back where the temple is, that the walls have been broken down. And what that means is, is historically, the nation of Israel has been conquered by Babylon. They have been exiled all over the region. And so a handful of them, a remnant, come back home finally to rebuild the temple, but there's no wall. So the people are at risk, they are in danger, they have no peace. And so Nehemiah hears about this predicament that they're in and Nehemiah's heart breaks and he knows he needs to do something. Now, now later on the story, one of the great lines that we're gonna see from Nehemiah comes when he has actually started rebuilding the wall and he's on top of the wall and some, some people come to distract him, to t- try to get him to stop building so they could come down. Like, like have you ever been distracted before? Like, do we not live in a world of distractions called social media and news cycles and entertainment? We live in so many distractions. But here was Nehemiah's response to the distraction. I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Listen, you are doing a great work. God has designed you for a great work. God has done something in you. He wants to do something through you. And and we got to be as clear 
on this mission as Nehemiah was. We have to be as confident in the purpose and we have to be concerned for other people. And so we've just been looking at what it looks like for Nehemiah to lead people to rebuild the wall. And I think God wants to do it personally, but I also think God wants to do it in our church. Amen, somebody? Like, like I believe that while we, the same way we see a remnant in the story of Nehemiah, we see a remnant in the nation of the United States. Come on. Like there's, there's a handful of people that God has called, that God is raising up, that they're standing up to say, we'll take the mission. We'll be like Nehemiah. We'll rebuild. And so we've just been looking at this idea of rebuilding brick by brick. You know, last week we talked about these bricks. You know, bricks by themselves are good for a paperweight and for a doorstop. And that's about it. Man, when, when connected with other, with other bricks, it can build a strong wall. And listen, each and every one of us, we are bricks. Hey, turn to your neighbor and say, I am a brick. That was not very loud. Although I I do think I heard some husbands say, you're a brick house. That's not what I said. (laughs) But good on you. That's pretty impressive. Man, and so last week, one of the ways that we did that was that uh, we wrote prayers on these bricks. And we had five different prayers that we wrote on these bricks. You know, one of them was that we would just get a glimpse of the glory of God. Man, that we would just see God do something unmistakable, undeniable, that it was just only God could do that. We also talked about just day by day. Man, that we want to see God add to our number day by day, that we would be a people that just like Nehemiah, we just live day by day, sharing the story of the simple gospel of grace. You know, the third thing is just a kingdom culture, that we would see people begin to live for God's kingdom, not for this kingdom. Amen right there. Like that we would have people who have eyes for eternity and hearts for heaven, who, who would enter into relationships differently, who would spend their money differently, who would parent differently, who would uh, go to work differently because they just had eyes for eternity. They had this kingdom culture. Then we also, may, you may have wrote five and five on that. We want to start five campuses in five years. It's very ambitious. And even with COVID, we just want to, we're going to tenaciously hold on to this until God gives us a detour, right? And we started two already. We're in the process of hopefully getting three off the ground, but we we want to see five campuses in five years. And then, then the last one, sacrificial generosity. Man, that we have whittled our debt down to $3.8 million, but we know what it would look like to be able to take that money and unleash it into kingdom people who will take the message around the world. And so the way we did that last week, if you weren't here, is like we came and everybody grabbed a brick and they just wrote one of those five prayers in there. So you may need to take a picture of that with your phone because then later on the service, if you don't have one, I would love for you to take a brick as we end in worship. Or maybe, maybe today you want to be an overachiever and get another brick and pray for two instead of just one. That we, We'd love that. But um, you'll have an opportunity opportunity to get that brick, but brick by brick, prayer by prayer, moment by moment, dollar by dollar, hour by hour, man, God's rebuilding his church. And God has called us to be a remnant, to have a Nehemiah mindset. And what could God do with a church that had a Nehemiah mindset? Amen. Man, a church that would rebuild I mean, a church that would give their life for others. A church would have the vision for life beyond what we currently see. And this is the life of Nehemiah. And so today what we're going to see is Nehemiah has heard the problem. His heart is broken and he's prayed about it. But now he's about to go and do something. He's about to get to work. And we're we're a get to work kind of people, aren't we? Like you you like to get work done, don't you? It reminds me of the story of Abraham Lincoln. You know, there's a friend of mine that when we do stuff together, we, we talk about how Abraham Lincoln cut down a tree. Maybe you've heard this. He says, it would take me six hours, four hours to sharpen the axe and two hours to actually chop down the tree. And I'll tell that to my friend. He's like, yeah, I get all that, but I like to chop down trees. 
And we are a tree chopping kind of church. Hello, somebody. Somebody say amen right there. Like we like to get things done. And so today's the day we're going to see Nehemiah move into that. And I hope today that what we're going to look at is some ways that you and I and us as a church, man, we can do a great work. We can know what the great work is that we're about and that we can move the ball forward and we can see problems solved. We can see lives changed. We can see marriages restored. So let's jump. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're just going to kind of work through the whole chapter today. Nehemiah chapter 2. So Nehemiah, again, has heard the problem. Nehemiah gets to go into the king simply because he is a cupbearer. And so this is where we start off in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to start out in verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? So so he recognizes, Nehemiah does not have COVID. (laughs) He recognizes that this isn't some physical ailment, it's his heart is broken. And it shows up in his eyes, it shows up in his in his, uh, in his posture, it shows up in his expression. He says, why are you sad seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, the reason why Nehemiah was afraid was because in that Persian culture, if you went into the king and you were not happy and joyful, they killed you. <laughs> like feels extreme. But the message was the king should always make you happy and joyful, whether you feel happy and joyful or not. So Nehemiah would have had to learn how to, how to, how to uh, respond this way to the king, even when he didn't feel like it. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, Jerusalem, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? In other words, what, what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah praise real quick. Now we know Nehemiah had been praying for a while, but he, but, he, but he throws up one more just to be sure he's in the right path. Now, now when we see this passage in Nehemiah, when we see kind of how he responds to the king, I want to introduce a new word and I just want to introduce this word favor today. Let me hear you say favor, favor. And we kind of know what a favor is. Somebody can do you a favor. You know, if you forgot your homework, they can let you copy theirs. You'd never do that, but they could. That would be a favor maybe. Um, man, someone, you know, can do something for you that you can't do for yourself. That's a favor. So the favor of God is when God does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And while, and so Nehemiah has been waiting for four months. And during this time, what Nehemiah has been doing has been working for the favor of God and for the favor of the king. And even Jesus grew, it says in in Luke, uh, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. In favor with God and in favor with people. And here's what we're going to see in the life of Nehemiah. The favor, the favor that you fought for is the opportunity that you prayed for. Okay, when you fight for favor, it's going to actually fill in the gaps, the thing that you're praying for. Now, let's, let's unpack the favor of God just a minute. Now, there's two types of favor of God. There's kind of general favor. The favor just means grace. And so we know that all of us have experienced the favor of God in the life of Jesus. Amen, somebody? Right? We know that because of the gospel, 
Because Jesus came for us that we have this opportunity for life, this opportunity for freedom, opportunity for forgiveness of sins, opportunity for purpose, opportunity to worship him. Like we've all experienced that. But then sometimes, sometimes there's this specific favor on the work that we're doing, on something that we need to accomplish. And we want the Lord's favor over that. And it it usually is big. Like, I don't know about you, but there have been times I pulled in a parking spot and it was really close. I'm like, that's the favor of the Lord right there because that's the only parking spot out here. And sometimes we use it in that way, but, but when we see the favor of God, he does something that we cannot do for ourselves. And usually what happens is how we wait and how we work will determine that the, favor, the favor that we get from God. So I want to just talk a little bit about this idea of waiting and how in Nehemiah's waiting, he was able to get the favor of God. Now, now when, whenever we've prayed and, and wanted something and we've had to wait, we know God's teaching us something. Amen. Like there's something he's teaching us and we generally think God's just teaching me patience. And no, nobody in this room has ever asked for patience. Am I right? Like, like nobody likes it. The lesson is hard and it's a grind. And so sometimes it feels like, well, if I'm having to wait, God's just like a mean teacher waiting for me to get my act together. But sometimes we're waiting not on you, but we're waiting on God. We're not waiting. God's not causing us to wait so that we'll have more patience, even though we need it. God is orchestrating something beyond what we could ever imagine. Do you know what God is doing behind the scenes of your life? And we see it right here. And if I'm just going to point it out and and, and you you may would have read over it. So it says in in verse two, in, in, in verse one, it says the month of Nisan. Okay. So, so what we know, there is a prophecy in the Bible, a prediction Oh, this is so cool. A prediction that once the, once the rebuilding of the wall happens or begins, that there's a 173,880 days until the Messiah shows up in Jerusalem. Okay, follow me. So from the start of the wall, once the wall starts, once the work starts, the countdown starts to when the Messiah is going to show up in Jerusalem. So right now, what we know is this is a prophecy that says the wall is starting. So in 173,880 days, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is exactly what happened. Can you imagine the level of detail that God is working behind the scenes of your life? That God is doing something so big, so kingdom-minded that we can't see it. And when we're waiting, we're not wasting time. And if we're not careful, we will waste time. We'll wait kind of like we wait in traffic. I just got to, there's nothing I can do. I'm just stuck. But there's this working that we can do in our waiting. What you do while you wait will determine the favor that you find. So, so, so how do we have favor from God? You know, there, there's nothing that you can do to force God. And, and some people say it like this, you know, you can't turn the, you can't turn the, on the faucet of blessing, but you can put your, you can, of favor, but you can get under the faucet. So when it turns on, you're there and getting wet. So how do you do that? Now, in Isaiah chapter 66, we see this. Um, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, so God is speaking. He says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. So think about this. Like the chair God sits in is heaven. The earth, this little planet that we're on, that's his ottoman. It's where he props his feet up. Then he goes on. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is my place of rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So God has made all of them. And he says this, but even though I have everything, if I, if I were hungry, you couldn't cook me a meal. 
If I were thirsty, you couldn't get me a drink. If I were getting rained on, you couldn't get me clothes. But here's what would happen. This is the one to whom I will look. Here's the one that I will show favor. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So like when we want to position ourselves for God's favor, for God to do something we can't do for ourselves, the first one is humble, humility. And all humility means is I'm just going to put others first. I'm going to let others go first. You know, Jesus said the first will be last, the last will be first. So I'm just going to put others first. Hey, husbands, dads, in your home, who's first? Who's first? Are you first? You put your kids first. You put your wife first. You put your family first. Hey, what about this? Who would they say is first? Who's first? You got to put others first. Hey, at work, who's first? Who do you serve at work? Humble, and we just put others first. Hey, the second thing that it says is contrite in spirit. And that just means brokenhearted. Like, what does your heart break for the things heart, God's heart breaks for? You know, what does God's heart break for? And it, it, it breaks for the homeless and the fatherless, for the addict, for the, for the destruction that's happening in marriages, and for the people who don't have enough to eat, and for those who are orphans. Like, God's heart breaks for these things. And while you're waiting, we should learn and identify, man, that my heart should break for the things God hearts, God's heart breaks for. Humble, contrite. And then the last one, it says, trembles at my word. And what that means is that you just do what God says to do. Like the things that you know to do, you do them. You know, there's this saying that we say around here, kind of the part of the Stone Creek way. It says, do what you know you should do, then God will show you what to do. So many times people say, like, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do next. And it's a little bit like kids. How, how many parents in the house? So when you tell your kids, hey, you need to clean your room up. And then they come in and say, hey, can I go out and play? What's the first question you ask? Did you clean your room up? And I wonder if God's asking us at times, hey, you, I know you, you're asking for all this other stuff, but hey, did you, did you clean your room up? Did you do the things you knew to do? Were you kind to other people? Did you forgive? Were you generous with your money? Did you invest your time? Are your eyes on things that are going to last? And this is what it means to tremble at God's word. We do the things that God has told us to do. And so this is how we find the favor of God. But not, now, Nehemiah also had the favor of the king. And it's really good when we have something we want to accomplish. It's really good that we have the favor of other people. And there's completely nothing wrong with wanting favor from other people. Now, we should not be subject to them in prison of what they think about us, which is where many of us end up. But to want people to view us favorably is actually something good. Like I said, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. So, so what does it look like to have favor of men? Um, we, just, we just add value to people. I love the fact that Nehemiah, if he were sad when he came into the king's presence, he, he, he was going to die. They were going to execute him. And while that may not happen to us, there is something that dies when we're constantly gossiping and complaining and negative. And what dies is our influence. We completely lose credibility for the gospel message. You know, when, when my kids were little, we would always say this, hey, we want shiners, not whiners. Feel free to use that if you want it. <laughs> On your kids, that is. Save the drama for your mama. That was another one that we would say. Listen, when we, when we go into places, whether it's at work or our neighbors, are we characterized by the negative things that we say? The gossip that we repeat, 
the complaints that we have, how bad the weather is, how ugly the paint color is, or, or is it characterized differently? You know, Jesus said to let your light shine before others so that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. And sometimes when we are negative and complaining and full of drama, it's not just a bad reflection on us, it's a bad reflection on God. And the type of people that have impact, the type of people like Nehemiah, who day in and day out went to work with honor, didn't complain, the king had never seen him sad in all the years of his service, those kind of people add value and it actually increases their influence. What, what value are you adding every day? What value do you add to people? Are people glad to see you coming? Or do people kind of duck their head and go the other way? Do you bring positive energy to people just in a way that's uplifting, not in that new age kind of way? <laughs> or are you kind of a downer to people? Do people know that you're going to tell them how bad your day is? If they ask you how you're doing, you'll be like, yeah, here's the 16 things that have gone wrong for me today. It's going to be one of those days. I'm like, and you're one of those people. <laughs> so how, how are we adding value to people? Listen, this is how... This is how God's going to use us. This is how we gain favor with people is by adding value. Then as we continue on the story, um, picking up again in verse 4 that I just finished with, it says, The king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, Now, now for the record, he was, he'd been praying for four months. He'd already prayed. And while he was praying, you know what he did? He determined a plan. And this is what we're going to see next. I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, now think about this for a second. Nehemiah has just escaped death because the king saw that he was sad. He didn't execute him. Not only did he escape death, he actually asked to take a leave of absence for an unknown period of time from a very trusted person. And the king says, yes, like, I don't know about you, but if that's me, I'm, I'm taking my wins and going home. Like, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm out. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah kept asking. He made some bold asks. He goes on to say, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. In other words, King, I need you not only to let me go, to, but to protect me while I'm gone. I need letters. Letters are just as good as an army in that region. He could just show the letters and people would say, that's, that's, that's Artaxerxes' guy, let's let him pass through. So now, if I'm, if I'm him, I now have safety, I'm good. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah keeps on asking. He asked for a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give him timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that he shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He's like, king, can, can I, buy, I'm going to have to rebuild some gates. Yeah, I need some wood for that. I got to rebuild some walls. Oh, and by the way, I need a place to stay. Can you give me some wood for that? Bold asks create big opportunities. Bold asks create big opportunities. And I wonder at times if God looks at our prayer life and he's like, that is really, really small. And he's not offended by our big prayers, but our small prayers. 
and Nehemiah had been asking God. God had informed his prayers, and his prayers had tur- turned into a plan. And now he went into action with these bold asks. And what, what, what is it that you're asking God for today? You know, our prayers actually reveal more what we think about God than anything. Like, is it, is, are you just kind of caught up in the mundane, or do you remember that God is big? Because that's why we pray bold prayers, because we have a big God. It always reminds me of the story of Agnes. Agnes was 13. She was in a convent, and she goes to her superiors, and she says, hey, I've got three pennies in a dream from God. I want to build an orphanage. And so her superiors probably were adults. So they said, yeah, with three pennies, you're not going to be able to do, you're not going to be able to do that. And she said, with three pennies and with three pennies in God, I can do anything. And of course, 50 years later, as she, Mother Teresa is picking up the Nobel prize, she'd done so much more and she credited her bold prayers and relentless faith for all that God did through her. Man, we serve a big God. As we just read, the earth is his ottoman. And the, the clouds are his shoes. If, if he wanted to touch the top of Mount Everest, he has to reach down. This is the God that we serve. And sometimes we don't know what to pray, what to ask for, because we don't know what we want. We don't know what we want. You know, King Artaxerxes says, what are you requesting? What do you want? And Nehemiah knew. Like Jesus would ask this question all the time. And it's very intriguing to me. There was a time he's walking along the road and there was a blind guy saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. And so Jesus says, what what do you want me to do for you? It's like, Jesus, really? Like, it's pretty obvious. Like, I'm not the son of God and I know what he needs. But there's something else that Jesus is trying to uncover in that question. What, What do you want? There's this other story. It's probably... My favorite story in the Bible, I have to say that at least once every Sunday. So my favorite story in the Bible, there's a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years his entire life. And every day some friends would bring him to this pool, this nice ornate concrete pool. And there was this belief that an angel would come and stir the waters of the pool. And whoever got in first got healed. And whoever got in second was guess what? First loser. Yeah, they didn't get healed. And so you wanted to get in the water first. So Jesus walks by and he looks at this man. And he says, do you want to be healed? And it seems cruel on the surface. I mean, it seems like, like, what is he getting at? What's he trying to accomplish here? And the man looks up at Jesus and says, sir, when the water is stirred, I have no one to put me in. Do you see the mistake? The man was focused on getting in the water, not on getting healed. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. We'll focus on getting in the water. We'll focus on doing all the right things, but we'll miss out on the healing that God wants And the world's always telling us to get in the water. Here's what's going to make your life better. Here's what's going to work. Here's how your marriage can be better. Here's how you can have fulfillment. Here's the clothes you should wear, the body type you should have, the car you should drive, the house you should live in. Like the world's going to constantly tell us how to get in the water when Jesus is offering eternal wholeness and healing and hope for us. What what do you want? What do you want? Like what deep down is going on? You know, sometimes for our marriage, you may, you may be like, I just want us to at least get along. Don't sell it short. God wants you to have a flourishing, life-giving, long-lasting marriage. You know, I think about this in some of the five prayers that we've laid out for the next uh, few months, that one of them is for us to be debt-free. Now, it would be cool for people and for a church to be completely debt-free, not so we get one less bank statement in the mail, 
but so we could unleash hundreds of thousands of dollars into kingdom Im- impact so that we could equip and train the now generation to go all over the world with the gospel, the people who were desperate for it, who were broken, who were lost. Like that's, that's what we want, isn't it, Stone Creek? Like that's what we want. What do you want? And then what we see in verse 11, that Nehemiah kind of gets to work. Man, he gets to work. It says he went to Jerusalem and he was there for three days. Then he got up at night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and that's exactly what you think it is, the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and I inspected the wall. I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and returned. But the officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing because I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. You see, the first thing that Nehemiah does is he doesn't, he doesn't arrive in town to a, to a parade. You know, there's no band, there's no stage. He's not like, here I am to save the world. Aren't y'all glad to see me? Nehemiah inspects the walls. Nehemiah defines the current reality. Now, Nehemiah, remember, had never been to Jerusalem. He'd only heard about it and read about it, and now he shows up. This is his first experience. And he knows, he knows that he's got to understand exactly what's going on before he can begin to rebuild. He knows he has to define current reality. And listen, when we define our current reality, we have to remember it determines our next steps, not our final outcome. And it determines next steps, but not our final outcome. So many times when we define reality, maybe it's ugly and nasty and painful, and in our mind it becomes hopeless. But not for Nehemiah. It just informed the work that he needed to do. You know, and this is hard work that everybody needs to do, define current reality. Do you have anybody in your life that will tell you the truth, that will point out your blind spots? Men men, men, men that will ask you about types of behavior that seem out of ordinary. They will lean in because they want what's best for you. You know, when Winston Churchill was leading England through, Great Britain through through World War II, because of his overwhelming personality and his sharp mind and quick tongue, nobody would tell him the truth. It's too harsh. So he created the statistical office that was independent from the military, independent from the government, because he knew they would tell him the unvarnished truth. And he says, yeah, and he could go to bed at night because he knew he had the facts. And he said this, facts are better than dreams. And we have to define reality. You need to find reality for your own life. What's it like to sit across the table from you? What's the response? What's the expectation? What's the fear? And what areas are you vulnerable in? Vulnerable to fall, vulnerable to sin, vulnerable to temptation. And what, what is your pride? What, what bubbles up in you that's prideful at times? Like when we, when we do the hard work of understanding more about who we are and how God's wired us and how we come across to people, you know what happens? We have more influence. But as long as we'll never take a hard look and never try to grow and never really wonder how we impact other people, we'll, be, we'll have no power in the lives of people. Let me ask you, what, what's your blind spot? 
Now, you can't answer that, right? Because what? It's a blind spot. Who are you going to ask about your blind spot? Do you have somebody you can ask about your blind spot? Hey, one reason we're going to do groups next week is simply because, simply because we're created for community and we make each other better. That's the message of the gospel. You can't own what you won't name and you can't change what you don't own. You got to be able to name what's going on in your life. Nehemiah closes out in verse 17. He says this, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build so they strengthen their hands for the good work. And I believe that God is raising up a Nehemiah mindset among churches of people who will rise up, who will stand up, who will be counted, who will sell out for eternity, who will keep their eyes on the great work that they're doing so that they can experience the favor of God in their life. Amen? Like, will you rise up? That's the question today. And will you stand up for what's going to last? Will you stand up for people who are broken and hurting and challenged and need hope? Like, will you? Will we rise up? Oh, yes, Stone Creek, we will. Now, one of the things that we can't miss out of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is actually a picture of the gospel, of the simple gospel. And we can't miss the connection between Nehemiah and Jesus. Nehemiah was heartbroken because of the problems and, that he heard and the brokenness of his people. It says when Jesus came that, that he had compassion because, they, because we were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus left home in heaven to come be with us and identify with us the same way Nehemiah left the king's room to go to Jerusalem where he had no house. Jesus, it said, had nowhere to lay his head while he was here. We know that Nehemiah gave his life into rebuilding the walls. And we know that the simple gospel is this. Jesus gave his life that we could be ransomed and have eternal life. This is the simple gospel. That the wounded can be whole, that the lost can be found. We got nothing else. But man, we've got so much. Let's pray together. So in these few minutes, I mean, there's just a lot of different categories to pray through in this moment. But I want to just start out just with our heads bowed and eyes closed. You know, as we see Nehemiah was a man of prayer, that we'd be a people of prayer and just have an opportunity just to be still before God. And maybe for you, you've never really experienced the simple gospel. You never made that step to follow Jesus. You've never committed your life to anything more than just tomorrow. Your motto is eat, drink, and be merry. But today, you know something's different. Something's stirred in your heart. God has shaken you a little bit. And you know, you know that the great work that you're doing is going to burn up tomorrow. It's going to be stolen from you. It's going to, rust is going to eat it up. It's not going to last. And you want more. So I would love to lead you in that prayer of commitment. As you commit to follow Jesus, you just ask him to forgive you of your sins. And he's going to give you a new life. He's going to begin rebuilding what's been broken down in your heart. So if that's you today, just, just in your own heart, just pray after me. Dear God, I've done life my own way, and I'm broken and need help. I trust Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I will follow him 
I ask for your favor on my life. In Jesus' name. And just with our heads bowed and eyes closed, what we want to do, man, you know, when you make that decision, the Bible says that you're a new creation. God has started this rebuilding work in your life. And if that was you today, I just want to help you mark the moment. So with that, just with our eyes closed, heads bowed, if that was you today, I'm going to count to three and just ask you to slip your hand in the air on the count of three. One, two, three. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. So God, we just come to pray. Grateful for the gospel, the hope that we have, Lord, as a remnant called out to stand up, to rise up, to do the things you've called us to do, God. Lord, I just pray you'd give us a glimpse of your glory, that we would understand more and more and more how, how big you are and how good you are and how worthy you are of our worship, God. Just for day by day, that we would see people come to know you day by day. God, that people would just commit to following you. People who thought they were following you but aren't. People who need to come back home, God. That you would just help day by day, just increase the number. God, not so we could have a lot of people, God, but so that heaven could be crowded. God, I pray that you would just convict us and compel us into sacrificial generosity. That we know that we need to lay up treasure in heaven, God. That that's the place where heaven needs to come. God, that we would build a kingdom culture a place where people are continuing to grow, to look more like Jesus, or just their lives are being changed and transformed, God. Lord, we pray for five and five, five campuses in five years. God, you would just look on us with favor as we just do what we believe you've called us to do and take the next steps that we need to take, God. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.